Blog Talk Radio. The B I B I L E, yeah, that's the book for me. The B I B I L E, yeah, that's the book for me. Describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was As long ago as that was have not changed, Lord. 
thinking just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You said Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the About my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still, you pursue relentlessly. At times, I wonder how this can be. Surely, it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of his great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So, even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever, this grace, it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never
that was shining with the mighty fortress of their God. And now, for a lesson, this is John MacArthur, the divine marks of a true Christian. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you have never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It will show you the power you have as a believer to defeat worry and to experience profound peace in every circumstance. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2021. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. I thought for this morning I, I wanted to talk about the Thessalonian church. This is maybe not so much like a sermon as it is a bit of a Bible study, so get your Bible open to those two chapters I read earlier. And I, I, I want to address this issue of the church from the inspired book of First Thessalonians. I know that many of you are new. We had 1,100 kids here last week. One-third of them had never been to Grace Church. They were hearing the gospel, many of them, for the first time. We have a lot of new people. I want you to understand what the Bible says a church is to be. I, I know you have been blessed and encouraged, and you've kept coming back to our church. But I want you to know what the pattern of Scripture is and why Grace Church is what it is. Let me go back to the close of the New Testament era. The last decade of the first century, 90 A.D. and beyond, Churches had been established since the apostolic era. Churches were established 50 years before that, 40 years before that, really. And they had been around for 40 years by the time it comes to 90 A.D. The Lord writes seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And those letters are personal letters that address each church in each of those seven cities in a very specific way. In that time, that was the area known as Asia Minor, which is today modern Turkey. Seven churches. They had been around for decades. They had been influenced uh, by the Apostle Paul. They had been most lately influenced by the Apostle John. They had been pastored by apostles and the associates of apostles. They had been led by elders who were chosen by the apostles. They were born, those seven churches, in the freshness of the eyewitness accounts of the Lord's life and teaching and miracles, death, resurrection, and ascension. They were churches under the instruction of the apostles who, along with their associates, were used by the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament. So they had the most prolific exposure to the highest level of spiritual leadership possible, apostolic leadership. They were born 
Not only under apostolic teaching and leadership and doctrine, they were born in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the first century, five of those seven churches are fatally flawed. So fatally flawed that they basically are condemned by our Lord for one sin or another or a combination of many. They are threatened by our Lord, threatened with non-existence if they don't change. Only two of those seven churches have no condemnation. They're only commended, and that is the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. Still in the first century, five of the seven churches have fallen victim to the influence of the culture around them so that they have defected from the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you that to let you know that it shouldn't be any surprise to you that that is still happening. It shouldn't be any surprise. Here we are 2,000 years since, and spiritually healthy, biblically sound, faithfully loving and serving churches are in the minority. Today they, they seem more common than even in earlier decades of this last couple of centuries. Many pastors are struggling to discern what they should be doing. Congregations express carnality, superficiality, shallowness. Leaders fall into sin. People in the congregation follow patterns of sin. And there seems to be a scarcity of faithful churches marked by truth and love and joy. There are many faithful pastors whose churches are reluctant to follow their faithful leadership. That is why we read in Hebrews 13, 17, a word to congregations. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. There's a lot of grief in the ministry because of unfaithful congregations. There's a lot of grief in congregations because of unfaithful pastors. Paul is the author of 1 Thessalonians. So we're backing up about 40 years. Paul had established a number of churches. He had, you could say, pastored a number of churches that had some very serious problems. Even though he gave them life initially through the preaching of the Word of God, even though his leadership was everything that they could have ever hoped or expected, there were churches that he himself planted that broke his heart. There was the church at Corinth, fleshly, worldly, divided, proud, lacking love, 
And he points these things out in the two letters that he wrote to them, which are in the New Testament, and there were two additional letters that he wrote to them trying to correct their iniquities. And then there was the church at Galatia, which had fallen prey to a defective gospel that was no gospel at all, that had fallen into fleshly behavior, legalism, disloyalty to the truth and the Lord. Then there was the church at Ephesus, proud, impatient, still holding on to sins from the past, lacking forgiveness, and spiritually weak. Then there was the church at Colossae, drawn toward legalism, carnality, sensuality, the worship of angels and mystical things, contentious, lacking love. Then there was the church at Philippi, complaining, worrying, proud, marked by discord. And all of that shows up in Paul's letters. But there was one church that brought Paul joy and only joy. This was the rare church. That's the church at Thessalonica. He was blessed to shepherd them, free from the troubles that plagued the others. I don't know how he could endure all that. He expresses his difficulty with it when he writes to the Corinthians and says, on top of all the physical suffering I've gone through, the worst pain comes from the care of all the churches. He says, who sins? And I don't feel the pain. Ministry can be hard. Ministry can be heart-crushing. And it was so often for Paul. He said to the Corinthians, am I to be loved the less when I love you the more? He must have rejoiced regularly in the Thessalonians. And then I compare him to my life. I've only pastored one church. And God in His mercy, understanding my limits, no doubt, and understanding my weaknesses, put me in the First Thessalonian Church of Southern California. This is obviously not a perfect church, but it's a faithful church. It's a loving church. It's a sacrificial church. It's a worshiping church. It's a generous church. It's an exemplary church. It's an evangelistic church. It's a gifted church. And I don't say this in any way out of any personal pride, the Lord has done an amazing thing here and we give Him glory for that. Our parallels to the Thessalonian church are what I want to have you take a look at with me, but a little bit of background. Somebody might say, well, maybe the Thessalonian church was basically seated in less 
challenging circumstances, less difficult culture. Maybe they were as good as they were, as faithful as they were, as loyal and loving and joy-producing as they were because their external environment was, was better than those other churches which suffered from the massive power of paganism. But that wouldn't be true. The Thessalonian church was in the very same world that all the other churches were in. It was a world of idolatry and only idolatry. It was a Gentile world where there was no knowledge of God, no knowledge of the Old Testament. Thessalonica was a a large city, about 200,000. It was a trade center. It was uh, on what's called the Via Ignatia, which was a trade route. The pagan world flowed through Thessalonica. It was a commercial center. It had been founded in about 316 B.C. by Cassander. Cassander was the king of Macedonia, and he named it for his wife, Thessalonica was her name, and she was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. That's 316 B.C. 350 years later, Paul arrives there. And he arrives there with his companions. At the time, Claudius was emperor. Now, it's important to understand that. His uncle Gaius, who had been the Roman emperor, the Caesar, had been murdered. And Claudius stepped into that, and some historians define him this way. He was an insane, stuttering, slobbering man. Just the kind you'd like for your leader. (laughs) Thessalonica had become the capital of Macedonia. The largest city in Macedonia, it was called the mother of Macedonia. Significant city. Strategic port on the Aegean Sea. The language was Greek. It was very cosmopolitan. Historians note that crime was rampant there. Very few houses had windows because the population had fortified itself by the elimination of windows because of the massive crime. It was controlled by an idolatrous pagan group of wealthy elites. There was no middle class, and the rest of the people, the majority, were slaves. There was conflict between the slaves and the elites, Immorality was common. Prostitution was both legal and highly organized. Archaeologists found in some of the digs around Thessalonica that obscene pornographic images had been painted on the outside of the houses, the outside of the homes. Babies were commonly abandoned, left for dead. Divorce was rampant. And murders happened all the time. This was a full-blown pagan city. 
into this city came the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, probably around the year 49 A.D. And he brought the Gospel. Let's go to Acts 17 for a moment and see what happened. Acts 17. When they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, this is on his second missionary journey, he went to the synagogue for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, the Messiah. That's what he was telling the Jews in the synagogue over those three weeks. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks. That, that would be Greeks who had become proselytes to Judaism. And a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, the Jews actually went out into the marketplace and hired some thugs to form a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. He had welcomed Paul and his companions. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason... That is a kind of a bond, a guarantee that these troublemakers would be gone. They released them. And they immediately went to Berea. I just want you to get a little bit of a feeling for what was going on in Thessalonica. Tremendously negative response to the Gospel. A year later, after Paul had founded the church in those three Sabbaths. About a year later, he writes this letter. He's in Corinth, and he's writing back to the Thessalonians. In chapter 3, if you look at it, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, you will notice that he says, um, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. He can't stand any longer not knowing how this baby church is doing in this hostile environment. So he sends Timothy. Timothy goes. Timothy comes back. Verse 5, he says, When I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now remember, this is three Sabbaths. And this is a baby church in a sea of paganism. And in verse 6 he says, Now that Timothy has come to us from you, so Timothy is back and Paul is now at Corinth, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, 
and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Really good news, isn't it? You're standing firm in the Lord in that pagan place. We really live when we hear that. And then verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. This is a church to make an apostle glad. It wasn't that their circumstances were any different. In fact, they were not any different. They were as bad as the rest of the pagan world. After all the sorrows over Galatia, he had written the Galatian letter, and this is the second letter that the Apostle Paul writes to these churches. And he's writing now very differently than he was writing to Galatia, indicting them for tolerating a false gospel. This is also a time when he's in Corinth, and so he's in touch with the horrors of that place, and he's overwhelmed by joy. He writes this letter from a heart of joy to a faithful church. Again, not perfect, because you'll notice I just read verse 10 of chapter 3. He wants to come and complete what is lacking in your faith. Obviously, they're just new in the Lord, and there's much spiritual growth. But look at chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. The worst that he can say to them is, you're good, get better. And then down in verse 9 of chapter 4, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. All he can say to this church is just keep doing what you're doing. Get better. The end of chapter 3, he gives this wonderful benediction, a kind of a doxology. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. He can't wait to get there. He was reluctant to go to some churches. He was afraid to go to some churches for what he would face. He couldn't wait to get there. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. He just says, just keep getting better until you see Jesus. Now, if you back up to chapter 2 in the end of chapter 2, Paul sums up his attitude toward this church. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? 
in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. For you are our glory and joy. I don't know how many pastors can say that. I can say that by God's mercy. This kind of church is rare. It was rare to the Apostle Paul. It was rare to the Apostle John. I've only pastored one church. And in divine mercy and kindness, the Lord has given me a lifetime of joy. The national average for pastors is three years. I'm at 52. And I can't help but wonder why God has been so kind to me. Similarities between the Thessalonian church and grace are unmistakable. Unmistakable. And there are two categories of reality that have to be considered. And that shows us why Grace Church and the Thessalonian church is what it is. First of all, it's leadership. I just want to talk about this for a moment. A church will become what it's led to become, right? Leadership is everything. So what were the marks of the leadership of this church? Just follow me for a bit. Go back to the beginning of the, the book. Verse 2, the first thing that strikes me is prayer. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers constantly, constantly, constantly. The, the apostles said in Acts 6, at the founding of the first church, we have to give ourselves to prayer. Leadership devoted to prayer. And secondly, to proclamation. Look at verse 5. Our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2. You yourselves, verse 1, No, brethren, our coming to you was not in vain after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. There is the mark of faithful leadership in a church, someone who speaks the Word of God without compromise. Not trying to please men, but pleasing God. Approved by God to be entrusted with the message. That's the uh, same chapter down in verse 9. He says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Down to verse 13. For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Did you get that? It's the Word of God that does the work. It's the Word of God that does the work. That's all you will ever hear from this pulpit is the Word of God. The leadership in Thessalonica was devoted to prayer and preaching. 
also to purity. Chapter 2, verse 3, our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. There was nothing hypocritical about Him. In verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Do you see how basic this is? Prayer, preaching, purity. And there was something else. Let's just for the sake of uh, alliteration call it parenting. Verse 7 of chapter 2. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And then verse 10, your witnesses how we behaved. And how did we behave? Verse 11, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Spiritual leadership has both a soft side, a motherly side, which is described in verse 7 as gentleness, tender care, and a fatherly side, which is exhorting, encouraging, and imploring as a father would his own children. This church was what God wanted it to be because these people were cared for by parental spiritual love that has a soft, comforting, encouraging, tender side and a strong, imploring, fatherly side. There's something else. Boldness. You could call it perseverance. Chapter 2, verse 2. After we had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. There are all kinds of things that want to get in the way, that want to interrupt the process. I, I, could, uh, I could do a historical timeline of all of the things that have come up in the evangelical world in the last half century that have pushed people back from boldness, back from courage. But where leadership is faithful in prayer, preaching, purity, parenting, and persevering against all opposition and all persecution, you're going down the path that produces a healthy church. And I would just add one other thing. The leadership was propitious. That's a, I know that's a big word. It simply means sacrificial. Chapter 2, verse 9. You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Sacrifice. Where you have leadership, committed to prayer and preaching and purity and parenting and persevering against all opposition and willing to make a sacrifice, you have a healthy church. And what's the goal of this kind of leadership? It's in verse 12 of chapter 2. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. What, what is the goal of pastoral ministry? It is that people would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls them. Worthy to bear the name of God. To bear the name of Christ. Where you have that kind of faithful leadership, you will see a church that is faithful as well. And that will bring joy 
to all who participate. I guess you could say it this way. The Lord took the temperature of the Thessalonian church and it was 98.6. It was normal. It was what it should be. There are no references to numbers, no dramatic outbreaks of spiritual realities, nothing about any programs, all spiritual realities. Timothy had come back and said, this is a church to rejoice over. And Paul rejoiced. And as I speak to you today, I have to say I feel exactly the same way. Um, in the language of chapter 1, verse 6, you have become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 14, you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. And over in 2 Thessalonians, if I can borrow from that, chapter 3, verse 9, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Imitate is used twice there, once in chapter 1 and once in chapter 2. It's the word mimites, mimic. It's uh, basically also what Paul is saying in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be followers of Me as I am of Christ. What does that mean? Both accepting the teaching and following the example. Following in the truth, in holiness, in prayer, in perseverance, in love, in humility, in sacrifice. But it has to start with leadership. And where you have that kind of leadership, you have that kind of church. Now let's go back to chapter 1. And I want to look a little more closely at the characteristics of a faithful church. First of all, it is a saved church. That should be obvious, but let's look at the beginning. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. And here's the key. In God the Father and implied in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace belongs to you and peace belongs to you. And we give thanks to God always for all of you. This is a completely redeemed church. They're in God. They're in Christ. The recipients of divine grace and divine peace. And Paul's prayers are nothing but thanksgivings because he bears in mind the evidence of their true salvation, the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. And again, he says, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. And by all these things, the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope, we know, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. We know your elect. Sylvanus is Silas, who took John Mark's place on the second missionary journey. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy brought them the Gospel. We read that in Acts 17. And he identifies all of them as a cause for thanksgiving because they are all in Christ. I mean, this is so basic. A church is made up of true believers. A church is not a spectator event for non-believers. 
It is the gathering of the redeemed for service and worship, prayer, and the hearing of the Word of God. True believers are in Christ. I don't need to say much about that because we have covered that many, many times in studying the life of the Apostle Paul. This is a real church. These people are in God. They're in Christ. They're even, verse 5, in the Holy Spirit as the apostles were. They're connected to the Trinity. They share the life of God. This is a true church. This is a true church. And of course, where they are truly in God, in Christ, what will declare that unmistakably is their works. The work of faith, the labor of love, steadfastness of hope. This is what proves their election. Truly saved. And not only, and this is something to think about, not only are they ordained to salvation, but even their sanctification is ordained. Can I show you that for just a moment? Look at Ephesians 2.10. We all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. You have been saved by grace through faith. That's a gift from God. God sovereignly gives it. But look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Then this amazing statement which God before ordained that we would walk in them. Now listen to this. We talk about the sovereignty of God in justification, but I want you to know the sovereignty of God operates in sanctification. God not only ordained your salvation, He ordained your sanctification. Your sanctification is a sovereign work of God along with your justification. God ordained that when you received salvation by His sovereign grace, it would manifest itself in the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. Those three most glorious of all virtues, faith, hope, and love, would mark the reality of your spiritual transformation. So it is a saved church, but secondly, it's a sanctified church. It's a sanctified church. Down in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You look a lot like Christ. You follow Christ. The things that are characteristic of Him are characteristic of you because that's the work of the Word and the Spirit. 1 John 2.6, the one who says he abides in Him, abides in Christ, ought Himself to walk in the same manner as He walked. Obviously, we're not going to be divine and we're not going to be perfect, but the same virtues that characterize Christ would characterize us to a lesser degree. That's why they called the believers Christians, little Christ, because they manifested the characteristics of their Lord. So when you have the right kind of leadership, 
the church becomes the assembly, the gathering of those who are in Christ. And it's not only marked by that transforming salvation, but it's marked by sanctification so that their election is manifest in the works which God before ordained that they would walk in. There's a third characteristic of this church, suffering, down in verse 6. You received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We read about that in Acts 17. They received the Word with much tribulation. Look, they were coming out of the ungodly paganism that was all there was in their world. When the church becomes righteous, when the church becomes holy, when the church begins to behave like Christ, the world will attack. Persecution will come. Some of it subtle, some of it overt. Reading a little background on Thessalonica, some historians said that what happened to the Christians there was chronicled in ancient times. Their property was often seized. Their jobs were lost because of their commitment to Christ. Their families shunned them. They were insulted. Some were beaten. And some were killed. The persecution was Jewish, as we read in Acts 17, and also Gentile. So you can expect that a faithful church, a church that brings joy to its pastors, is going to be a redeemed and saved church, a sanctified church, and necessarily a suffering church. Maybe insulted or worse. But fourthly, this was a strategic church. Verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. That's the first thing. Your work of faith, the labor of love, steadfastness of hope is exemplary. You became the strategic model. Your example. But it wasn't just your example. There's a second aspect here. Verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, the immediate region, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. That little congregation in that pagan city had such sanctification and such zeal for proclamation that the apostles didn't have to say anything to commend the church because everybody knew. And I think that's true here. I think when people talk about Grace Church around the world, if they are lovers of Christ, they're thankful for how this church has circled the globe. We had a missionary conference this week, Zoom, every day of the week. 
Many of the leaders and teachers up at 4 a.m. because of the time changes, all our missionaries around the world gathered together. The preaching and teaching of the Word of God from this church and this pulpit goes out all over the world every hour of every day. And when the world comes here for conferences or when they tune in for live stream, they see the character and quality of this people. This is a, this is a church that is strategic by virtue of its witness in terms of life and its witness in terms of message. There's one final thing I would say. This is uh, this church in Thessalonica and ours is a second coming church. Verse 9 says, Everybody knows, they report to us what kind of a reception we had with you, Paul says, how you responded to the apostles, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That's the salvation, sanctification. And then to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. The second coming church. They wanted to know everything about it. Over in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope, those believers who had died. What about them? If, the, if they had already died and the Lord hadn't come, what would happen to them? He says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This we say to you by the Word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. When the Lord comes, the dead in Christ rise first. Their spirits already with the Lord. Their bodies rise. Verse 16, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. We preach strongly the second coming of Christ. He is our hope. He is our hope. And because we know He's coming, it gives impetus to our desire to pray and to proclaim the Gospel around the world while we still have time. So what is the church to make a pastor's heart glad? It's, um, it's saved people. It's sanctified people. Their election is manifest in their lives. And their lives are literally imitatable as they imitate Christ. It's a church full of examples. It's a strategic church in that its example is manifest and its message is proclaimed. And it's a second coming church waiting for Christ. We're not trying to fix the world. We're waiting for Jesus to do that. And that has a lot to do with our fidelity to Scripture. Churches today all caught up in the nonsense of trying to fix the world, which is like going down to the beach and trying to sweep the ocean away with a broom. <laughs> I'm not uh, 
trying to say we are what we should be, what I am saying is what Paul said, excel still more, right? You give me endless joy. You always have. Does that mean we never had any problems? No. It means that we've had the problems and we've seen the Lord triumph, which increases the joy. Father, we thank You again for laying out the truth as clearly as You have. seems so simple. As You defined what a church should be by virtue of its leadership and its congregation, how it must sadden Your heart, even as it did when You wrote the seven letters, or when You carried the the pain of the Apostle Paul as he saw so many churches defect. We know it breaks your heart when pastors and leaders are unfaithful or immoral or speak lies. It's equally heartbreaking to you when congregations are rebellious and hard-hearted. So, Lord, we thank You for the grace that has been extended to us here. And we thank You that You've allowed us to spread this wonderful grace around the world. And may we never, ever see this as anything other than Your sovereign goodness to us and Your loving kindness. Help us to excel even more in every way for Your glory. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. We kick it old school. We kick it old school. We kick it old school. Come on, come on, gonna miss the latest craze Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it The only change that comes, winds up in a pocket Pop on the wagon, try the everything All the while we're missing all the joy that God can bring You can take the news route, you can keep the flop piece of bread we act as if the holy word of god is all but dead all we need to know is right there on the pages why are we obsessed with who the guy on stage is it's the hottest dance get the latest buzzy you're gonna find out jesus wasn't very fuzzy was he? 
Life. Discovered on Venus? This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit our full-size Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky. Last fall, headlines declared life had been discovered on Venus, or at least signs of life might have been found. At the time, we said it probably wasn't life. The Bible teaches God formed Earth to be inhabited, not Venus. Well, a month went by and two new studies said the so-called signs of life were likely just naturally occurring. Then a third study four months later confirmed that the signs of life had nothing to do with life. So there's no life on Venus after all. When you see something in the news that contradicts God's word, just give it time. Eventually, science will catch up with the Bible. And why? Well, because it's the true history book of the universe. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or plan your visit to the Ark Encounter at AnswersRadio.com.
different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. No, we And the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation, chapter number 7. The church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation. Together, forever, with saints of all kinds, through each the glory of the Lord's going to shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go. Animals? This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine, Answers. Is insulting someone by calling them a pig, sloth, or chicken actually insulting animals? Well, the animal activist group PETA thinks so. They recently tweeted that such language reinforces the myth that humans are superior to other animals. Now, PETA starts with evolution, so they build a very different worldview because they have a very different starting point. When we take their ideas to scripture, we see PETA's worldview as anti-biblical. We're made in the very image of God and given dominion over creation, so yes, we are superior to the animals. Now, that doesn't mean we simply lord that over creation. No, we kindly rule over God's creation. Discover more about a biblical worldview when you visit AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. i 
Are animals persons? This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's word. Happy is an elephant that lives at the Bronx Zoo. And last year, a U.S. court confirmed that Happy's not a person. Of course not. But the group arguing his case believes an elephant is a person because it has self-awareness and autonomy. But is that what determines our personhood? Well, no. Many animals are smart, can communicate to a certain extent and have their own unique personality. But those characteristics are not what make humans persons. What ultimately makes us humans unique and set apart from animals is how God created us in his very image, says Genesis chapter 1. Elephants aren't made in God's image. They're not persons. Subscribe to receive daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or share it with others at AnswersRadio.com. Here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph, and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. of the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up the sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you sure going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used craft to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. 
The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs to cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Giving kids the right foundation. This is Ken Ham, author of the new book on godly parenting, Will They Stand? Scripture commands parents to teach their children the things of God. But how do we do that? Well, first of all, we need to give them the right foundation to build their thinking. That is, their worldview. And that foundation is God's Word. So here's how this works, practically. Don't teach kids that the Bible is just some guidebook to life or book of moral things. It's the foundation for our thinking and for a biblical worldview. It's the ultimate authority from the very first verse. We must always start with God's word and hold everything up to scripture. Without the right foundation, we can't expect children to build the right worldview. Learn more about God's word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Discover answers to the questions of our day and be equipped to share them at AnswersRadio.com. What is prayer? Prayer is offering up our desires to God for things agreeable to His will.
given now we can pray to our Father in heaven above. We can come to our God at any time of the day and He'll receive us so great His love. He wants us to talk to Him with a sincere heart and rejoice when we're really glad. And when it seems like things are falling apart, we can pray when we're feeling sad. And when we do bad things, we confess our sins. We can pray all alone or with our friends because of Jesus. in Genesis. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. Yesterday we learned that to teach children in the Lord we have to start with the right foundation, the authority of God's word beginning in Genesis. You see the biblical worldview is grounded in the history in Genesis. Why is marriage for a man and a woman? Because that's how God created it in the beginning. Why is this world full of death and suffering? Because we live in a once very good world that's now broken because of sin. Why do we need a saviour? Because we're all descended from Adam and Eve and therefore sinners. All our theology and worldview is grounded in that history. So we need to teach God's word as history from the very first verse. Subscribe to receive daily email updates from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group. Christ brought us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose? Partly to fetch hats from the furnace. Who Jesus extravagant service. Immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent and we only scratching the surface. He proceeded with conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior. The greater am became a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts, easily Posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, with the gate is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and his bright in the might, and a diamond in mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the lost, he found low. He was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the crown. Yo, Satan had a trick hold on him. Fight for the rope, but open in. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the end. That's what we hoping in. Risen on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell bound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born, I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was fought with a price. We gotta hope they won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name, par excellence, prenom, phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see. The father of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's potter, we are pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy he's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly you ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent it's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment study the development from old to new testament you'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age it's relevant crisis on its center stage forget religious sentiments the center on man but something less is what you're settling he is the most excellent exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance yeah. the sinner sinners that Separated and segregated that severed the relations between man and his maker and placed Christ on his costly cross and compensated his life, death, and resurrection emancipated and gave us freedom from it all, freedom from the effects of the fall, freedom from Adam and Eve and the garden of Eden and from the law. So the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. <laughs> Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. 
Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
that's all I got for the show today. Gonna go out with Yancey and his friends in the VIBLE, and also happy Fourth of July. Uh, happy Independence Day. Bye for now. <laughs>